Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 68. And I want to thank you for taking the time to walk with me on this podcast. I appreciate those who have followed along. And if maybe perhaps this is your first time with me, I I welcome you. I pray that the Lord speaks to you, that you see the majesty of his word and his presence through his word. So I hope this blesses you. Uh, as especially as it blesses me. So today I want to talk about something that I actually approach with great caution, a great respect, uh, even really a fear, I think in a healthy way. But today I want to talk about Adam's sin. And this is something that I have been in for perhaps a week or so, maybe less, but It is a topic that I believe that the Lord is opening up insight to me. And I do want to, though, preface what I share with with a statement. And it's this. I, I don't presume to have all the answers, and I don't want to portray myself as someone who does. I realize that I am like anyone, uh, carry the possibility of being incorrect or wrong. So I don't want to portray the, the reality that what I, everything that I say is not without the possibility of me misunderstanding. I have a very I have a very intense desire to discover the truth that is in God, in Christ. And I desire to go deep into understanding because I believe to know truth is to know God. And Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we pursue truth, we are pursuing Christ. And so this is something that I have, I think, a special grace upon my life to ask these questions that maybe perhaps we have always assumed to be so, and maybe we have always heard taught a certain way. And so as I spend time with the Lord in through His Word, through His speaking, through leading, I I believe that the Lord takes me down paths of understanding or clarifying or redefining. I think it would be presumptuous of us as a people to assume that all of our Bible scholars, even in the generations before us, have it all figured out. It would be presumptuous of us to believe that what a person experiences by way of revelation through the word and then goes on to teach and that message gets propagated 
that's it would be unsafe of us to take it at its face value to and then begin to assert that as the truth it is important however for each person to explore the word of god to digest it to chew on it to allow the holy spirit to speak to you and it doesn't mean that truth is relative i i don't i do want to caution that it's truth isn't relative revelation though i believe is relative it's why that i think that in a room of 10 or 100 people who have a deep desire a deep value and appreciation for the word of god it's why you can get 10 or 100 of those people in a room ask them questions about different aspects of scripture and 95 percent of them could land in a different place It adds to the complexity of the, I would say, really, we are the barrier to understanding. We are the limitation. It's not that God's word is a limitation, nor is God a limitation, or is God um, so far out or so far higher that we can't begin to start the journey of understanding him more fully. And when I say him, I don't just mean his, just his personality. I mean also everything he has said and everything he has spoken. And we have much of this in the, in the Bible. So I say that to say um, we, we should each begin to wrestle and grapple with potentially hard truths to reconcile them in our hearts and in our minds with and but always 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 keeping the written word of god the bible keeping it in this it, in its place of uh, of reverence and if you will allowing the bible to be our anchor of okay here's what it Here's what it says, and so I must bring my understanding to the level of the Bible. So oftentimes, we, we take what the Bible says, and we try to accommodate it to what we think, and we get into serious error when, when we do that. So we want to lift or raise our understanding. We want to come up to the level of the word. And when we do that, we can then posture ourselves more rightly to receive the inherent truth of what his word says. So uh, I, I preface all of this with this real genuine reservation of I want to present accurate and I want to present truth, even if it, I believe, flies in the face of much of contemporary thought or teaching. And that's not to just be a contrarian. I hope that can come through in those who know me personally, but also those who hear my voice. I, I hope that I don't come through as a, just a contrarian to be different for different sake. Um, my desire is to 
be genuine and to understand accurately. But again, so many of us can have such differing perspectives and it can cause quite a bit of frustration when you value truth and you want to discern what you understand and how it measures with the truth. It can be difficult and and frustrating for individuals like that because, like I said, so many people have such potentially varying degrees of understanding. I actually asked the Lord this question, why is it that we all think so differently? Why, Why isn't that you just reveal the same thing to every single person? And I believe his response to me was, it because it because it facilitates people to me and and that's very much true it's what it has done for me in many situations where i find myself in a very different location in terms of understanding compared to other people not that they're wrong or i'm right but that what it has done is it has facilitated me drawing me to closer to him to try to understand him and so it fosters this relationship with God. It fosters a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And whether, now don't mishear me, whether I'm wrong or right is important. I don't want to be wrong and I, I do want to be right. But there is also a even greater um, availability inside of that. And that is nearness to God. I can be completely far away from God, but be right. Now, that actually does no good, and I would argue does much harm. I would rather be close to God and wrong than far away from God and be right. That 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 right there is um, is a, an important revelation to get. And that is my first time experiencing that statement. And let me tell you, it's blessing me right now. I think in our day and the days to come, even previous generations, the most important thing that we can do is be close to God. He will sort it all out. Okay? When when we ultimately come to the end of all things and we are reunited with God, with Christ, we are... He will then clear up all the fog and we will understand him as he is. And whether right or wrong, um, that will sort itself out. And, but my primary desire in, in through all of these podcasts and even just in my own private personal life, my primary desire is to be near to him, to know him, to love him and to be loved by him. And and then in the matters of revelation and understanding and teaching, all of those things, I have to just I have to just trust and rely that that he will lead, he will guide, he will teach me. And what I understand to be true in terms of revelation and understanding, what I understand to be true now in 10 years from now, could be completely transformed. He could open my mind to to new possibilities. You know, Jesus told his disciples, I have much to say to you, but you cannot 
handle them now or you cannot tolerate them now. So just as the disciples weren't in a place where God could reveal certain things to them, I too am in places that he cannot reveal things to me yet. And, and the same for you. We are all in a very unique place and God reveals things to us as he knows best because he can see from the beginning, before the beginning, through every incremental piece of the storyline and he can see beyond the storyline. He's this master weaver and he is creating and he is positioning and aligning according to his plan, according to how he sees and it's greater than anything that I could presume or imagine. So that was a monstrously long <laughs> preface. So um, I do apologize about that. I don't want this particular episode to be um, very, very long. However, I do already have the beginnings of a part two to this episode, and, and it's more tailored towards what I believe is kind of a, uh, maybe a rebuttal to this, and, and maybe that's not a great word, but as I began to, to make notes on what I'm going to be sharing, I began to get this passage out of Romans kind of start coming to mind, and, and if I was somebody in discussion with myself, I would be very likely to say, well, okay, I see what you're saying, but what about this passage? How can, how can this passage in Romans reconcile to what you're saying? So I kind of think of this part two as a, um, well, we'll call it a rebuttal, but kind of a response geared to the passage in Romans. So that all being said, Again, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for still being with me here 14 minutes into this thing. And I have yet to say anything about this, to this topic. Um, but thank you for taking the time. So today I'm talking about Adam's sin. And this is something that really kind of jumped out at me as I was as I was studying. Again, I've said before in previous episodes that I've been spending some time in Genesis. And I do this from time to time and and. As I was walking through Adam and his the fall of, of humanity and their sin, etc., um, this began to kind of resonate with me. And so I want this to be both a, a suggestion for thought, but I also want to kind of put a line in the sand and say, well, I want you to think about this, but but as I've thought about this, I'm finding this is where I'm landing on this matter. So I don't just want to be kind of this fence rider person who's like, well, maybe, you know. Um, I want to kind of affirm what I am thinking and believe and where I stand, um, but also with some fluidity knowing that I want to uh, come into agreement with what God shows me and as he develops me. And I hope that that might inspire you to do the same. So when when I began to journey through this with in Adam and his, in the fall, um, we know this. I'm going to be turning kind of with you. So if you hear some page turning background noise, I do apologize. Um, so I'll be kind of flipping through some of these pages with you. But 
Um, when we find the, the fall in, in Genesis chapter 3, God spoke to Adam, and he spoke after his disobedience. He spoke regarding that disobedience, and he pronounced a judgment for his failure to uphold the commandment. And, and remember what God had said to Adam. He, he was told to, to not eat from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. It says in chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so that's the commandment. That's the explicit directive that Adam was given. You can eat of any tree, every tree of the garden, but do not eat of this one particular tree. So now we know the storyline, many of us, Eve is interacting with a serpent. She is deceived. She takes of the, the apple. She, she eats of that tree. We think of it as an apple, but she ate of the tree. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her. He was present through this. And so now we find that they ate of the tree and then they, then they had a revelation their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Think of this moment as, I mean, it carries with it many things, I think, but there was a, a self-consciousness that was awakened in that moment. They knew they were naked. They did not know they were before. And not only were they aware of the nakedness, they found themselves embarrassed, ashamed, I think that reinforces this self-consciousness. And they so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So now we we find that they hear the sound of the Lord walking and they are not where they normally are. And so God calls out to him and says, "Where are you?" And Adam responds and says, "I heard the sound of you and I was afraid." Because I was naked, I hid myself. So he was ashamed of his nakedness, and so he hid, or he recoiled away. Now, so there's some more dialogue that occurs here, and we find ourselves, verse 14, the Lord God is saying something to the serpent, and he puts he pronounces a judgment over the serpent. And then... In verse 16, God speaks to the woman and pronounces a judgment over her. He declares a thing over her. And then in verse 17, and this is really kind of the where we're landing, it says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, 
I want you to really notice all the times it said you. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what I want you to really notice very intentionally, the specifics of to whom God is speaking. Now, if you've noticed, which I try to bring those forward, he is speaking to Adam himself. If you look back in the Hebrew of each one of those, you and your, it is singular. It's, it's singular. So it's not written, spoken in a way that signifies plural, as in to say you all, but it's singular you. Okay, so keeping that kind of in, in the thought processes of our mind. Because very oftentimes we read and are taught to draw a conclusion that it is that this is a statement regarding all of humanity in explicit language god is not saying you all he is saying you adam something that has really been stirring with me as of late is we take this exalted view of what has been, I guess, credited to Adam in the fall. And we take a very low view of what has happened by way of the redemptive process that we experience through Jesus. Adam's sin is credited with much power, with much effect. And you may think, well, why are you saying that? Because I believe that he, that he Ad, the sin of Adam, is credited with much more effect than what Jesus was. Not sin, but his, the, what, he, what, he, what was credited through him, through his death and resurrection, the effect that it had on um, on his, on those who would be brought to life through his death, burial, resurrection. I believe that we in our minds think of the effects to be more effective in terms of what happened with Adam than what happened with Jesus. Now, you may think, well, no, that I don't believe that. But practically, I propose that this is true, and here's why. We hold to the thinking that the sin in which Adam committed was then applied 
to every single person since Adam. So there is an involuntary application of the power of sin over humanity in terms of the efficacy, right? How, how powerful. The sin of Adam, we think, is infinitely efficacious. What do, you, what do I mean by that? Right? We, we think, we understand that every person since Adam has inherited this involuntary application of the power of sin. And as a result of that infinite efficaciousness, everyone bears the condemnation that Adam received. Right? The, the, for the wages of sin is death. And, and God said, when you eat of it in the day, you will surely die. It's fascinating. I'll just plug this here. It, it's, it's interesting to me that the wording that God used there. In the day you eat of it. He didn't say on the day. That's interesting. Because the devil said, you will not surely die. Well, we know that Adam didn't drop down dead. So God's wording of in the day, I think, reveals to us a, a truth inside of that. He didn't say on the day because on the day you eat of it, you will die would lead us more to believe that Adam will drop down dead the moment he eats of it, but he didn't. So I think it was very intentional where God said in the day, think about what that carries with it and what that means. But so everyone bears this condemnation that Adam received is what we understand. However, the work of Christ on the cross, we actually consider limited. Now, what do I mean by that? We think that what is available or the effect that Christ had on the cross is for those only who believe or perhaps who have been predestined to believe or somehow able to act or acquire or um, acquisition that which Christ accomplished this work that was the result of his actions um, on the cross, grace given through his shed blood. So, in terms of efficacy, in that thinking, we subconsciously consider the outcome of Christ to be less effective or less affecting than the work of Adam and the work of the hand of Adam. That is, that's very troubling to consider. And we know that thinking actually is incorrect. We know better by Scripture. Paul writes how much greater is what came by Christ. So let me, let me just pause and say that again. We subconsciously consider the effects of what Adam did to have, a, to have a deeper, more fuller reaching impact by way of this perpetual birthing in sin, the, the sin inherited by Adam. We think it has his, the act of that has a more far reaching affecting all of humanity, but we then also simultaneously think that 
what we inherit by way of Christ is somehow limited to a certain subset of people. Now, I am not proposing that Christ dies, everyone's saved in terms of the salvation of their soul. I'm not proposing that. What I am proposing is that our mentality, our way of thinking regarding the matter, we take a high view of Adam's sin and we take a low view of shed blood of Christ on the cross. That, that is the heartbeat of what I'm trying to portray in, in this first proposition. We have a low view of what is accomplished through the cross and we take a high view of the byproduct of the sin of Adam that we believe we all inherit. But what if God was speaking to Adam and we aren't extrapolating this, this all of humanity perspective? As the years progressed from Adam, we see that through the offspring of Adam, the world is filled with nothing but thoughts of evil. God decides to bring about a judgment of purification. And what does he do? He brings about his flood. Now we know from the story that Noah and his family are saved. In fact, Noah was considered righteous before God. And is in, in his righteousness, his family was saved. Ah, this is an even more grand reality because the righteousness of one extended to a whole house. So I believe here is an example of how we underview the effects of righteousness, of, of the righteousness of God, because we don't ever consider that it was the righteousness of one that granted righteousness to the whole house, that, that gave that there was a saving grace issued to the whole house because of one man. Now that is a more grand reality to have. The righteousness of one extended to a whole house. So God brings about this flood destroying all that has the breath of life in it. Which, again, I may have spouted out on this before, but I think it's interesting here that it was those that had the breath of life in them that were destroyed. What about, think about the fish. They are spared from this explicit judgment. Those that do not breathe air. It's fascinating to ask that question. Why not, why not those um, fish, etc. However, when God speaks to Noah, he says, never again will I curse the ground because of man. Now, this is interesting because it implies that the curse towards the ground is resolved. We can infer this because it's implied 
to what point would God declaring that if the curse remained, I will never again curse the ground because of man. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. If it's still cursed, why does that statement matter? God doesn't say things that have no point, that have no effect, or that have no significance. Think about this. If, if I was to make you sick, if you are still sick, and I say to you, never again will I make you sick, what does that statement even matter? You're still sick anyways. Whether this sickness revisits you or not, if you remain sick, then another curse of that sickness makes no impact. You're already sick. So I believe embedded in that promise, I will never again curse the ground, tells me something important. It tells me that the ground is no longer under, under that curse. Now, that's a mentality shift because we think and we are taught this, this ground curse mentality and that it will only get resolved upon the consummation of all things when Christ comes back. But I, I beg to differ in that. Here's another example. The flood itself, actually. God says to Noah, never again will I flood the earth. He creates a rainbow in the sky as a sign of his promise. Remember, he said, never again will I flood the earth. If the earth was still flooded and God said, I promise to never destroy the, to, to destroy by the flood, if it was still flooded, would that promise even matter? Would it mean anything? So what if Adam receiving God's judgment for sin was himself the one that God was speaking to and not the whole of humanity? Now, I'm not suggesting or proposing that humanity is without sin. What I do propose is that our source of sin is not the consequence of Adam's sin. It's the consequence of our own sin. That's important to, I believe, if I had to sum it, if I had to sum up this whole episode, what I'm hoping to portray accurately is I don't believe that Adam's sin is the source of our sin. His guilt is not our guilt. It's the consequence of our own sin, our own guilt. I believe that we have overviewed Adam's sin and the consequence of underviewing the work of Christ uh, accomplished. Let me go to a passage in Deuteronomy 24.16. This is during the period of Mosaic Law, the Old Testament. And 24.16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children. Nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. I'm going to also read um, Ezekiel 18, 20. And it says this. 
We'll, pa we'll back up and read 19 as well. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So, as all of humanity is birthed from Adam being the first man, we can consider him a physical forefather. And this Mosaic law tells us explicitly that the sins of the father are not credited to the children. And the sins of the children are not credited to the father. You see, this flies in the face of everything that we believe to be true regarding the sin of Adam. We believe that the sin of Adam is credited to us. It is, if you will, on our tab. Many people will think of this verse next and then use it as a justification for believing that Adam's sin is is considered is considered to be credited against us. So when when I, I'm going to read this verse, but in this verse you may think of it and think, I oh, see you're you've missed the mark there. And let's just read it and see what it says and see if we can inspect it a little more fully and closely, because I believe there is something there to uncover it and it is Exodus 34, 7. So let me flip to that. Exodus 34, 7. And I'll get there eventually. And let's, we'll, I'll back up and read verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay. Okay. We think of that verse and we immediately then say, see, the iniquity is passed on generation to generation. But let's, let's think a little more closely here because that, does, that mentality, that thinking does fly in the face of what we just read out of Deuteronomy 24.16 and Ezekiel 18.20, that seems to counter 
what is being said. But let's take a closer look at what might be lying there. The text says, Who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I believe that is not to say that the children will receive the guilt of the iniquity. The iniquity of the, of the sons, the iniquity of the father, it's not saying that the future generations carry the guilt for the iniquity. It's that the generations can carry or will carry the consequences of iniquity not the guilt of the iniquity. I believe that's something that we should clear up because on the surface, apparently seems to somewhat, we would call it, contradict what God speaks elsewhere in the verses I read. In the Old Testament law, we see this, and even in we see it in Romans, for the wages of sin is death. So the result of sin is death. What you earn from sin is death death. So when it says the fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, it's the judgment against or the judgment on sin. But that's not to say that there are not, that there is not consequences of sin. So the guilt, what I'm proposing here, and I believe that the scriptures back this up, is that it's not about that the, the children carry the guilt of the father, nor does the father carry the guilt of the children. But there can be an exchange of consequences. David saw this in his day regarding his, his sin with Bathsheba. Now, David confessed his sin, was forgiven his sin, there was, however, a consequence that affected his house and his sons and their legacy that is important to recognize. Remember, the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. There is another passage in Jeremiah 31, 29 through 34. Let me just quickly turn there. Jeremiah 31, 29 through 34. And it says... In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, 
not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So we'll stop we'll stop there. So upon closer inspection of this, it's not declaring a new approach or a new view or perspective on sin and judgment. God God clarifies what this new covenant is, and it is a covenant of this, I will put my law in them. And no longer will it be a thing that you have to learn and you have to observe it. It will be something that is in you and that you will desire it. It was written on stone, but he says, I will write it on their hearts. It will go from this cold, hard reality to the soft and suppleness of your own skin. You have your own flesh. It will wrap itself in. It is like when we think of the heart, when he says, I will put it in their heart, I will write my laws on their heart. It is as though God's desire will wrap itself upon your heart, your desire, and he will be your God, their supreme one, and they shall be his people. See, I believe that we overview the effect of sin of Adam. Adam sinned, and Adam was judged. God brought judgment upon him, and I believe the Old Testament even confirms that the unrighteousness of one is judged against that one. We found Adam in a garden, fellowshipping with God, having intimacy, having connectedness. But we also find Satan in this garden. He has already fallen. We find him tempting Adam to sin. But we say that sin entered into the world by Adam. I don't believe that's accurate. God told Cain before he killed Abel that sin is crouching, waiting to have you, but you must master it. I propose that sin was already present prior to Adam's decision. It was waiting at the door for Adam in hopes that he would come into agreement with it and empower it because Adam had not yet decided and so Adam had not yet received the sentence of death. He was at that point an eternal being in the physical So just like Cain had to make a decision regarding sin, Adam is making that very same decision regarding sin. So I believe sin was present prior to Adam's fall. That should stimulate in each of us, well, then where did sin come from? 
What is its source? And while I'm not prepared to go there, nor could I ever answer the, the question fully, we see, though, Satan already being in the garden. So he had already fallen. Satan is referred to as the father of sin, called the father of lies, lying is sin, the father of sin. So we could say that the source of sin is the first fallen, Satan. Now, I, what I want to also, though, be clear is we are still in need of rescue from our sin. None of what I am proposing is to, to try to rewire our thinking to believe that, oh, well, we are not in sin, therefore we do not need saving. That is absolutely what I am not saying. We still need rescue from sin. John says this, anybody who says they are without sin is a liar. I am saying that the source of our sin is not Adam. It is our self. And we must be rescued from that self-sin. We need to lower our view on the power of sin. And we need to raise our view upon the, the finished work of Jesus upon the cross. What it is, what is given, the effect, the efficacy of that cross and that shed blood. We need to lower our view of the power of sin and elevate our view of the power of the blood of Jesus. We still need saving. We still need rescue. But it's a rescue from ourself, not from Adam. I would trade a million lifetimes for a moment here with you.